so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. You're listening to the ERLC podcast. Just missed. I had a throat burp. (laughs) It did. It's on its own. I didn't do it. It was just one of those things that I swallowed water and then it went. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the ERLC podcast, where each week we'll be talking about our work at the ERLC and focusing on what Christians should know about the things going on in the world. I'm Lindsay Nicolay, and back with me this week is Brent Leatherwood. Hey there, Lindsay, and hey there, friends who join us on the podcast. Yeah, how was your whirlwind uh, tour of state conventions? Did you tell them last week that I was going doing that? We did. Okay. Yeah, no, I I loved it. So I'm one of those nerds that I enjoy business meetings, be they from the legislative world or church business meetings. I actually, I really enjoy it. And so getting to go to places like the Illinois Convention, Michigan Convention, North Carolina Convention. I find those endlessly fascinating. So that's great. I loved it, it. Is it because of the interaction that you get to have with people in the midst of those business meetings? No, I I mean, I actually, the mechanics of the meeting, like someone proposing an amendment to a motion and someone saying, well, let's change this. And so it becomes a second degree amendment. And I just think all that is just neat. Do you just get excited and accidentally say, hey, I No, I don't know because that would be inappropriate. That'd be a violation of the bylaws. Yes. 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 I'm not a voting member of those uh, those conventions. So no, Lindsay couldn't Mm -hmm. do that. But still. And and yes, the other aspect of it is the social aspect. I love meeting people in our Baptist family. And so that was great. And getting to represent the ERLC. Yes. Well, we we heard that. People enjoyed you being there and sharing about the ERLC. We have a new staff member, Caden Christian, who was an intern, and he was, as people say, baptized by fire. He went there through, went on the trip with you and got to experience everything. He said he had a great time. Yeah, so and, I'm, and I'm really excited. I mean, our team is at 10 different conventions this year, this convention season. And I just think that's great. That's the, I think at least since I've been here, that's probably the most conventions at one time that our team has been at and, you know, fanned out across the country to be at. And so we're going to big ones, going to smaller ones, and they're all an important part of the SBC family. And I just, I don't know. I think that's pretty awesome. For as small of a team as we still currently have, the fact that we're hitting that many. Absolutely. That's well, great. We're glad to get to go and we're glad to have you back. Yeah. And, let- and, and I'm feeling good because it was election day this week. We're going to talk about that. We are going to talk about election day. I can tell you're feeling good because you have a lot of words this morning. <laughs> I think that's I think that's what's known as a backhanded compliment. <laughs> Let's go ahead and talk about what's been happening lately. That's also your way of saying shh. 
Yes. So I can move on with the podcast. Yes. Well, let's talk about what's been happening lately. And we'll start with what the ERLC has been featuring. Now I've got two pieces to share this morning. And they have to do with election day and the midterms, which we're going to talk about in the culture section. The first piece is by Jordan Wooten, and it's titled The Anger of Our Political Moment, How Christians Can Model a Better Way. So he talks about an NBC News poll that was conducted in mid-October, and it addresses how people approach politics. And Jordan says, the findings mostly aren't good. So we have felt a sense of anger and fear and extreme partisanship. And these results say, though, well, what we're feeling is actually true. The findings show we are, as Jordan says, a country highly interested in the political process, but highly divided in our political calculus. And alarmingly, we're being driven to the polls in record number by a common motivation, anger. And then he gives a rundown of the polls and what they indicate. And then most importantly, Jordan speaks to us as Christians to show us why anger isn't the way and why we should in no way be participating in going to the polls in unrighteous anger. Now, there's a place for righteous anger. Of course, we're angry that babies' lives aren't being protected or that mothers aren't being taken care of or whatever it might be but we still have to walk by the Spirit and in the fruit of the Spirit in the midst of that. And Jordan says this at the very end, while things continue to devolve, as the NBC News poll indicates, Christians bear the responsibility for showing the American electorate a better way and for holding our elected officials to a higher standard. In American politics, as in all of life, we should not be known by our anger, our party, or even by our voting record. We should be known by our love, love of God and love of neighbor. And it's so appropriate. And of course, we need the Spirit's help to be set apart in the midst of this political moment. And then our second piece put together by our ERLC staff is titled, What You Should Know About the 2022 State Ballot Initiatives. So these are a rundown of the initiatives in different states that uh, we are concerned with here at the ERLC. So they would be initiatives related to abortion, related to the legalization of marijuana, related to sports betting, and then related to slavery and indentured servitude. Uh, This rundown is helpful because it puts all this information in one place, and we've already been able to do the work for you so that you don't have to go try to look it up in different places. It'll help you to understand where certain states stand on these different issues. So, Lindsay, on that first piece that you mentioned from Jordan, that part in there where he talks about so much of us likening our political moment to an existential crisis. Like that is just spot on. And we have to understand and step back that feeling, that sentiment, whether it is people telling you this is a crisis or the common political trope that is trotted out each and every election season, that quote unquote, this is the most important election of your lifetime. It just heightens that sentiment. And we need to realize it is fed by politicians who are wanting to motivate us to get us to the polls. And often that's rooted in some sort of like fear that they are trying to instill in you or operatives uh, for those campaigns or pundits. I mean, it can't be that each and every election that we happen to be able to vote in is the most important election of our lifetime. Like it just, it can't be that. In the span of your life, there probably will be some that are more important than others for sure. But the fact that that is just trotted out 
each and every cycle. It's We should be able to recognize that for what it is. It is a motivating tool. It is a get-out-the-vote tool. And as Christians, we, we shouldn't approach the ballot booth like that. Instead, we should think through the issues that we are facing in our community and think through uh, the choices before us on the ballot. And specifically when it comes to candidates who are seeking our vote, you know, think through where do they line up on these issues and do they have the competency to carry through on those issues? And then, you know, do they exhibit the character uh, that represents yourself or your family or your community? And that's how we should approach these elections and, and realize there will be times where our favored candidate prevails and there will be times where our favored candidate does not. It does not mean that our democratic republic is coming to an end. And so instead we should say, okay, this is how we are going to, to navigate the public square and the political environment that we're in and just realize that. And then I'm thankful, obviously, for the second piece uh, that we put together because there were so many ballot initiatives across the country. Now, obviously, one that goes into effect in Michigan is not going to have an effect on someone who lives in Nevada. But nevertheless, it's something I think there's a lot of interest in right now. And so I think that will end up being a very good resource. I think it's important to point out, too, that results of elections can be scary when things don't go the way that you're hoping that they go or when you have legitimate concerns about these issues that we should care about. So, and we know that elections have consequences. So it's important to note that if you're tempted to fear, you're not alone. But instead, as the collective body of Christ, we have to remind ourselves what to do with that fear. Yeah, I would say maybe we we need to think less along the lines of fear and say disappointment, right? Yeah, I mean, that's good. absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, in this election, if you're looking nationally, there's disappointment all across the board, particularly in those ballot initiatives that we were just talking about. But I think we need to realize, okay, this is a setback, but it's temporary in nature because of the cycles that our system works through. We will have another opportunity in two or four years to correct these disappointments and to take action. And it's falls to us as actors within this system to go out and and advocate or take part in initiatives where we can improve the situation. And so I really do want to resist this urge to be fearful. I mean, look, Scripture tells us we don't have a spirit of fear, but one of power, like courageous power and love and self-control. And like, that's what we need to operate through as we engage in political discourse or political activities or just the wider public square, there's just too much fear out there and it's rampant. And I just think we need to resist allowing it to come into the church or to come into even our own thinking because that, I don't know, I'm not sure that that's the the healthiest mindset from which to go in and engage the political space. You're right. And your language of disappointment is good. What I'm just saying is as an encouragement to those who struggle with and or tempted toward fear, you're not alone. You're not the worst Christian ever. Yes. Instead, yeah, right. let's you we need to focus on re- renewing our minds 
and changing our categories by God's grace because we don't have to fear what is temporary. Mm-hmm. And we can trust in the sovereignty of the Lord. And we have voices like yours and others in the public square that remind us of these truths, the way our system works. We have these cycles. We have these cycles and things will look different in 10 more years, 20 more years. So we have to take the long view and play the long game. Well, we have several more articles on our site, not related to the midterms. We have one about anxiety and other things. But for now, Brent, that's your look at what's happening on ERLC.com. Now it's time for our culture section. Brent, why don't you fill us in on what's been happening this week? Well, obviously the midterms uh, dominated this week. And so we will lead off with a recap of where we were midweek from Baptist Press. The story here says control of the next Congress remained uncertain by early afternoon, Wednesday, November 9th, a day after the 2022 midterm elections. Republicans seemed near to gaining the majority in the House of Representatives, while it appeared a December runoff might be required to determine which party controls the Senate. In the House, the GOP led the Democrats 204 to 176 in seats won as of 1.45 p.m. on Wednesday. Race calls in the House leave Republicans 14 short of the 218 seats needed to take the majority from the Democrats. In the Senate, the GOP needs to win three of the races for a majority. Democrats require only two victories to maintain a majority by virtue of Vice President Kamala Harris's tie-breaking vote as president of the Senate. For a slightly just more updated look, uh, I did find a piece from the Wall Street Journal that talks about the Republican Party inching closer to expected narrow House majority with the Senate still a toss-up. So just briefly from this, Republicans remained on track to take the House majority on Thursday, but with dozens of races still outstanding, their expected gains had narrowed significantly. Meanwhile, the Senate control is undecided as both Arizona and Nevada continued to tabulate ballots and Georgia headed into a December 6th runoff. Two key governor's races also remained open. Despite much uncertainty, it was clear that the election hadn't been the strong rejection of President Biden and the Democratic Party that many Republicans had predicted. The results of Tuesday's elections revealed voter anxiety over the highest inflation in four decades, the state of the nation, abortion access, and crime. Voting also showed the electorate remains polarized following a tumultuous few years marked by political upheaval, economic uncertainty, and a global pandemic. Democrats avoided the worst outcome because their voters came to the polls with high enthusiasm, according to voter surveys, while swing voters often broke in their favor. The journal also quotes President Biden by saying this, while the press and the pundits were predicting a giant red wave, it didn't happen. After campaigning around the country for midterm candidates, the president framed his party's wins as evidence that his agenda has been popular. We're just getting started, he said. And then just to continue a little bit more of what you were talking about in the previous section, Lindsay, with these ballot initiatives, going back to Baptist Press, they had an update on the pro-life efforts that failed in at least four states. From the story, it says, as pro-life advocates appeared poised to suffer across-the-board losses on five state ballot initiatives voted on Tuesday in the first nationwide election since the reversal of Roe v. Wade, the failure to gain passage of a pro-life measure in Kentucky or to defeat constitutional amendments that guarantee abortion rights in California, Michigan, and Vermont dealt a troubling setback to Southern Baptists and other Americans who welcomed the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling in June. 
In addition, the vote totals reported in Montana by midday Wednesday seemed to indicate a pro-life proposal would fall short of passage. By overturning Roe, the high court had returned regulation of abortion to the states and brought an end to the legal regime throughout the country that resulted in the deaths of an estimated 63 million-plus preborn children since 1973. So, needles to say, from this final perspective about some of these initiatives, and there were more on the ballot than just abortion that we were kind of paying attention to, it was a disappointing night from that perspective. And it was a fascinating election from just a political science perspective. Well, I remember us talking on the podcast about the fact that in the midst of inflation and struggles people are up against, President Biden's message was so strong on abortion and it seemed to be tone deaf. That was not going to bode well for him in the midterms. And then everything kind of got upended and didn't exactly go the way people thought it did. So you talked to our staff a little bit and helped us to understand these midterm election results. So in non-political punditry terms, and for those of us who may need bottom shelf level explanations, give us a rundown of what happened during the midterms and what this means for us and how we should think about it. So one of the most descriptive phrases that's been used in all of the news analysis after the elections is that for the elections for office, Democrats were able to, quote, defy political gravity and defy historical gravity. And that is absolutely correct. So what I mean by that is from a political and historical perspective, typically the party that is out of power in the first midterm for a president typically gains seats. The historical average is about 27. However, that changes when the president's approval is below 50% to about 37. And so that kind of sets the bar for just if the Republicans who are not in power had just had an average night, they would be expected to gain anywhere from that range, 27 to 37 seats. And when you add in variables such as the highest inflation that we've seen in a generation and just the economic uncertainty that's out there, interest rates increasing, et cetera, gas prices uh, higher than they were, there's just a lot of headwinds that were facing the Democratic Party and a lot that you would think, okay, they're not going to see a very successful night. And I thought that would still hold true, even with the added variable of Roe v. Wade being overturned. I didn't think that would be enough to overcome these other forces. And the reality is that played a part in it. But I think you can look at what Democrats were able to do. I think you also have to look in some of these races at at some of the Republicans that were running. And there's a few things that matter. Local issues matter candidate quality matters, and the ability to respond to what is on the minds of voters in in their local communities. And so I think people just, you know, watching politics, we've gotten into this national mindset that everything is nationalized. And, And to an extent, they are. But if you forget about just doing some of the fundamental blocking and tackling from a campaign perspective, where you are responding to the needs of voters on the grounds, or you're responding to at least what's on their heart, If you fail to do that, voters tend to see right through that. And I think that's what caught up with a few of these candidates for office. 
And then Lindsay, as to your second question, you know, what does this mean for us and, and how we should think about it? Well, it kind of gets to what we were talking about in the in the the first segment. There are there are races or there are initiatives out there that, you know, the results are are absolutely disappointing. Uh it 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 doesn't mean the end of our democracy. It doesn't mean that we should uh, never vote again or we can't trust the process. What it means is, okay, well. Uh, if if you're in Arkansas and you had a RIFRA amendment fail, okay, what what can we do uh, to promote religious freedom uh, around the state of Arkansas so that the next time that we have this opportunity, it won't be such a a close uh, loss? And like that's the way I would think about it. And I mean, it reminds me uh, of the passage from from Psalms: we're, we're not to put our trust in princes, uh, earthly, uh, fallible princes. And I think I think this this shows why, uh, because inevitably there will be some disappointments uh, that that come back from any election, uh, frankly. So you mentioned the unknowns right now in the Senate and the House. How long until we'll know how that shapes up? Right. So the latest, the very latest that we know right now is that Georgia is definitely because of a procedure that they have in their state law. Georgia is definitely going to a runoff. We don't yet know with any certainty what's going on with Nevada. Right now, the Republican nominee there is up slightly, but there's still many returns, mail ballots specifically that are coming in that need to be counted. And then in Arizona, they're actually still going through their election day ballots. And right now, the Democrat, Mark Kelly, who's the incumbent senator, he is up on the Republican challenger, Blake Masters. Both of those will probably get resolved here in the next few days. They'll probably be able to complete their counts. So probably by the time we're able to record next week, we'll know with certainty there. If the Democrats prevail in both of those, Georgia won't matter in terms of who controls the Senate. It will just be whether they have an additional seat. So that's on that side. On the House side, there's definitely still some very close races I still think it's more likely than not that Republicans will have a slim majority, certainly not what anyone thought they were going to have over there. And so I think from that perspective, I'm heartened because if Democrats control the Senate, okay, that's what we have now. If Republicans retake the majority, at a minimum, we know that maybe some of the excesses of President Biden's agenda are not going to be carried through. That I think is a is a good thing based on just some of the proposals that have been put forth over the first two years from the administration. And so, yeah. This is an aside, but your being able to say all the names of the people who are running and et cetera is like people, generally men, with the talent of knowing all the sports stats in the history of the world. And it's not because you studied up for this. It's because you genuinely follow this stuff. Yeah, like, are you just spouting off these different names? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I stayed up late on, so. on Tuesday night, as I do every two years mm-hmm. uh, for election night. And I love this stuff. So for folks in our audience who may not know, I, for many years, ran campaigns and worked in public policy and electoral politics. And so this is just kind of baked in just with the air with you who I, Yeah, it yes. really is. The air yeah, you it really is. So... What about the legislative life initiatives that failed? And we've talked about discouragement, the temptation to discouragement there. Help us to think about this rightly and know how to move forward. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, gosh, it's not, I am fighting that temptation right now, that temptation to discouragement. I mean, 
it would be hard if I lived in Michigan right now to not be uh, discouraged because they have approved a measure there, Proposition 3, that in many ways may take them beyond the Roe framework as it relates to abortion. And golly, that is not good by any definition. At the same time, it makes me thankful for the pastors and the believers in Michigan who have been steadfast throughout the run-up to this election in advocating for the sanctity of life and trying to remind their neighbors about the importance of this. And so I would just say, all right, that mindset that was motivating you ahead of this election, you're going to have to keep it up. And it reminds me in the immediate aftermath of the Dobbs decision, which overturned Roe, we were specifically trying to tell people, hey, this is not the end of the pro-life movement. Instead, this marks the beginning of a new chapter where we're going to have to bring our message of life, uh, our message of service to mothers and fathers and families. We're going to have to bring that to our neighbors and go neighborhood by neighborhood, county by county, state by state. And it may be another 50 years until we get to a true culture of life around the nation. And so there will be setbacks, particularly in states that tend more towards a pro-abortion posture. And this is going to be hard work, just as the last 50 years were. But the joy that we felt when Roe was overturned, I believe we will get there and feel that even more so when life is truly protected legally throughout the country. So I think we just have to take the mindset of, all right, we're buckling in. This is going to be uh, hard, long work, and we're going to have to create leadership pipelines and equipping events and do so around the country. Because I do believe there will come a day from the perspective of life where California protects life just as much as Tennessee does right now, for example. We're just going to have to realize it's, it's going to take a while. That's okay. Which seems like an impossible dream right now, honestly. But in a society, not just a society, but a a world system and our own flesh that expects quick fixes, Mm. it's hard to take the long view like we talked about earlier. And that's what we have to do, plot along. And that's such an analogy to the Christian life anyway. It's what we're doing. We're walking along in a marathon. It's not just something that's quick and wraps up easily with a bow right away. Yeah. And I mean, we should also understand legal solutions. They're very important. That is not the only way to accomplish this work. I was texting with a dear pastor in Michigan, and he definitely was disappointed by these results, maybe even frustrated. But he texted me and said, you know what? It is just a reminder. We are going to have to work to culturally make abortions unthinkable so that way we can get to a day where it is made illegal. And that's true. And so how do we go about that? Well, we continue to urge and support pastors to proclaim the sanctity of life from the pulpit, remind their congregations, stir in their congregations the truth of that reality, that those neighbors who just happen to be preborn, they are just as much loved and valuable in the eyes of our Lord. And we need to do things like support our pregnancy care centers and mobile clinics that can go meet these vulnerable women with unplanned pregnancies where they are and let them know about the reality of the life that is in their womb. 
and then continue to advocate before policymakers and state officials to let them know this is, if we truly want to be consistent with our founding ideals, it is entirely appropriate for the state to step in and protect those vulnerable preborn neighbors. And so there is a lot that can be done here to save lives, serve mothers, and make sure that families can actually flourish. And so, yeah, we need to take a multi-pronged approach. And I will say doing that, if you are active in all those areas, right, supporting adoption and foster care agencies and supporting your, your local clinics, advocating and establishing a true culture of life in your churches, if you are diversified in your efforts in that way, it lessens the sting of a temporary political or electoral setback because you're like, okay, all right, well, we'll recommit in that area, but guess what? We're still really moving along in these other areas. And I think that's a helpful approach to adopt as well. That is helpful. Well, briefly, just tell us what you expect to see or what we should expect in the next two years leading up to the 2024 election. Yeah. Which is so weird for me because my girl will be in kindergarten. That's right. Fall. Yeah. Whoa. Marion, she'll be in kindergarten. She'll probably at that point be running for president, at least of her school. Yes. She'll, or, or she'll just do a hostile takeover. <laughs> More likely the yeah. hostile takeover <laughs> scenario. <laughs> well, so uh, Tuesday night concluded the 2022 election. And that means when you woke up on Wednesday, it was officially the 2024 election. I mean, here's the reality, folks. In our current cultural moment where we idolize politics, that just means we are in a perpetual campaign. And I hate that. And it exhausts so many people out there. But particularly when it gets into the presidential cycle, that start time has just been moving further and further up. And so there were lots of conversations about former President Trump announcing a 2024 campaign even before the midterms concluded. There's some reporting out there that suggests he actually may do it next week. Other folks are looking at Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who absolutely had just an incredible election night. He may be announcing at some point in the coming months other individuals, former Vice President Mike Pence. So there's just a lot of speculation out there and it could come at, at any time. But even now, there is a event happening later this week where a number of potential 2024 Republican hopefuls are going to be publicly talking about their vision. And even from the stage this week at a press conference in the White House, President Biden was asked about uh, running and he gave every impression that he is certainly intending to run. So we are in the 2024 election cycle now. And so I think from that perspective, the political side is already happening. From the policy side, a slim House Republican majority and a slim either Democratic or Republican majority in the Senate, ultimately, it's, it's just going to lead to not much happening out of Washington, which means that politics will actually take over in D.C., um, and it will be more about positioning for 2024. So that's what to expect. So if you were tired of uh, politics all the time, um, the, Take camp a nap. The, the campaign ads will... Yeah. <laughs> it's starting. Yeah, yeah, the campaign ads will lessen slightly unless you're in Georgia. But otherwise, it's just going to be nonstop news coverage. So that's what to expect. 
Well, so hey, thanks for that encouragement. The pre- well, the prescription, <laughs> the prescription for that is mm-hmm. is don't pay as much attention to, to TV and twenty four hour news channels, and go read a history book. Go, go read, read a good book. Go do a really good devotional uh, that that keeps your mind away from those things. That's that's go what check I would out recommend. your local pregnancy resource center. Yeah, and- <laughs> yeah. Go work. Go serve in your community. <laughs> right. Those are great ways to avoid the 2024 election cycle that is now upon that us. That is now upon us. Well, thank you so much for that rundown. It's helpful for those of us who don't eat, sleep, and breathe this particular subject matter, though it is so important. So I usually end with talking about something fun that doesn't really have much bearing on our lives. And today it is the announcement that if you are a royal watcher, The Crown season five has just started this week. So... Where are uh, we in the in the Charles timeline? and Diana are married, but they're experiencing great turmoil. So I think they just switched over actors again because you know they change them out as they get older. But it's especially poignant because it's a new season after the death of the Queen. And uh so Do we anticipate the Queen passing in, in this like will this be the final season or are we thinking No, oh, okay. no, this isn't the final season because Charles and Diana are yeah, I couldn't remember how many how yeah, many years spans. are covered in, well, in each. Yeah, I don't know where the crown is going to end, if it's following the whole life of Queen Elizabeth II. I haven't done enough research into it, but no, the, each season spans, the span isn't terribly long. So like Harry and William aren't grown yet, et cetera. We haven't encountered the great William and Kate love story. So, oh, so is, that a, got, is that a great love story? Well, yeah, for, oh, okay. for my generation. Oh. You woke up and watched the watched the wedding and had a party. Well, I, yeah, I mean. Have you ever watched The Crown? Uh, maybe the first couple episodes mm-hmm. of the first season. Yeah. It's very British. You have to be. It's very British. Well, I mean, I love it. Yeah, I love British. I, I, but I like more, I mean, as we kind of just pointed out, I kind of like the British parliament, British yeah. government side, not necessarily Yes, the you're going to be monarchy. watching West Wing, which is not British, but. You'd rather watch West Wing than, <laughs> than uh, or you'd be watching Amazing Grace yes. <laughs> instead of yes. The Crown. So, well, for those crown watchers, the new season is out. So I think I said this last time, but make some tea and crumpets. And yes. I don't even know what a crumpet and is. And as our British friends say, God save the queen. That's right. For the series. Now it's God right, save the king. Right, because now it's God save the yes. king. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Just a reminder, you can find links to all the things we talked about today in the show notes. And if you like the podcast, please consider helping us spread the word by sharing the episode on social media or going into your favorite podcast app and leaving us a rating and review. The ERLC podcast is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is hosted by Lindsay Nicolay and Brent Leatherwood. Technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week with more content. Mm-hmm.